Hello and welcome back to our notes on Native American philosophy, research, etc. Whatever this is. Um, today we are wrapping up our discussion of Native American philosophy and talking about the move forward. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what to expect. I imagine this will actually be a smaller, shorter discussion than uh, the ones in the past. Like, they were definitely running up on two hours a couple of times there. Um, but the fact of the matter is, this week has been a lot of skimming, a lot of, like, exploration of maybe just a couple of parts of a couple of texts, as well as just finishing up my reading of Verdos and Ortiz. Um, so this is really kind of a wrap-up lecture more than it is, you know, a formal discussion or even something terribly involved, I think. Uh, I'm kind of secretly hoping that this ends up being, like, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, and we'll call it a day, but knowing how long-winded I am, really, who knows what's going to happen here. Um, but there are a couple of things that I kind of want to talk about before we get really underway. Um, specifically, like... Let's talk about the research process for a moment. Um, obviously, like, this has been pretty slapdash. Like, for the past month and maybe, you know, a couple of weeks or so, I've been trying to dive as deep as I can into Native American philosophy, th thought, perspective, worldview, um, etc. And, you know, the opportunities afforded to me have really boiled down to I kind of read four books and... That's what I've got time for before I've got to move on and, and start looking at something else. Um, but the way that I do research, this is kind of normal. It also doesn't end. Like, that's the thing. As is the case with any creative endeavor, as is the case with many, many projects, um, ending is a kind of tricky business. Like, when you open up the, the Pandora's box of I am researching a new thing and I'm trying to figure out as much as I can about it as quickly as I can, um, you inevitably end up with a lot of loose threads, a lot of sort of dangling resources and, and stuff that you sort of stumbled across and thought were interesting and want to follow up on but can't immediately. Um, and I've kind of gotten into the habit as time has gone on of just spending at least a little bit of time every year trying to revisit uh, topics, research subjects, class material that, that you know, I, I'd kind of abandoned because I didn't have the time to follow up with it earlier. Um, and usually that just takes the form of reading, like, one book on the topic. And because these things overlap and, you know, interact with one another, it, it's always a little bit more complicated than that, but... It is, you know, something that I've sort of been making a conscious effort to do. Um, so to give you an example, like every year, you know, since I've taught the, the general humanities class, the one on Faust and Don Juan, I have kind of gone out of my way to try and find another book in the Faustian or Don Juan tradition to add to my repertoire. Um, it's not necessarily something I'll ever teach. Um, it's not necessarily something that, like is especially scholarly, but it is something that I try to do just to sort of keep myself mindful that, yeah, this is a thing that I am responsible for knowing, um, and if it's changing, if there's other stuff out there, then I really want to, you know, track it down and read it. Um, so in the spirit of that, I, you know, ever since I started teaching the, the general humanities class on Faust and Don Juan, I have gone back and I've read stuff like Byron's Don Juan and added it to the curriculum for that matter. Um, a couple of my students a couple of times recommended uh, this relatively recent book called Jack Faust. 
Um, like as one of the assignments that I almost always assign in my classes is, hey, find a contemporary retelling of this story or, or you know, a contemporary mythic reference. Um, and one of the students wrote about this book, Jack Faust, that was published in the last like 15, 20 years or so. So I tracked it down and I read it and it was a good time. Like it was well written. It's not something I'm going to be adding to the class anytime soon, but you know, it's an interesting contemporary look at the subject. Um, one year I went back and read Stephen King's Needful Things. This year, I've finally tracked down Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus, which is a gaping hole in my knowledge, um, and I'm hoping to read it this summer before the, the summer lets out. Um, this is just how I do research. Like, I get deep into a topic, and I learn everything that I can about it in order to prepare for the teaching or whatever it is that I'm doing with it. In this case, Native American philosophy. Um, eventually, I have to cut myself off because, you know, I have to, like, study other things and prepare for classes and do you know, other stuff. Um, and then I just sort of like drip feed myself reminders of, of that topic as time goes on. Um, so as much as this is kind of me signaling, hey, we're done talking about Native American philosophy, I'm going to stop talking about Native American resources just because I kind of have to, it doesn't change the fact that there's like a half dozen books sitting on my shelves or, you know, coming in the mail or that I want to check out of the library, things that I want to continue researching. Um, and this, I suspect, is something that goes on with everyone, like, anytime you deep into a top, you dig into a topic like this, you end up finding pretty quickly um how deep it actually goes and and by digging deeper you find you know how do i put this it's like spelunking like whether you've ever actually gone into a cave or whether you're just familiar with digging around in minecraft you are probably familiar with the fact that every time you walk into a new passageway there are other caverns other passages other places that there are to explore they keep branching out exponentially um, and you will, you find pretty quickly that either you will get lost very quickly or that there are certain places that you're just not going to have the time to explore. Um, maybe you set up a signpost. I should come back to this later when I have better tools or more food or whatever. The same is true with research. Um, so as much as this is going to be kind of a recap of what I've been doing for the last week, specifically looking at the, the resources that I've skimmed or, you know, finished off or just sort of read the introduction or whatever, this is also going to be an account of the stuff that I still want to read. Um, the stuff that has been recommended to me or the stuff that other people are pointing me towards. Um, this is hardly the end of my foray into Native American philosophy. I want to keep a toe in that water as frequently as I possibly can. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about the four areas, topics, things, books, whatever that I encountered this week and sort of talk about how they've led me on to other stuff. Um, first and foremost, I had the, the two books that I grabbed from the Montclair Library on Central America, uh, specifically A Brief History of Central America and The Gods and Symbols of Ancient Mexico and the Maya. Um, this... I didn't spend a lot of time in these books, like really I just read the introduction of the gods and symbols of ancient Mexico and the Maya, skimmed over the chapter headings and, and looked through a brief history of Central America really to discover that like we were covering the same ground in just more detail and I didn't need to do that. Um, I did at least want to be familiar with, you know, the rest of Native America um, and obviously by focusing on North American Native American philosophy, I was not doing justice to either Central American tribes or South American tribes, which 
I definitely didn't even scratch the surface of South American culture, so you can, like, chalk that up to the things that I want to research in greater detail and things that I should definitely know about but don't. Um, but what I basically learned with the, the Gods and Symbols book and, and the introduction that I read there, and I did read the introduction all the way through, um, the basically, like, we're dealing with a very different cultural arrangement in Mexico specifically and, and down through uh, Central America all the way to like Venezuela roughly. Um, it is a very distinct, a very sort of locally, I don't even know, self-contained culture. Um, there are it, there are sort of like its own traditions and its own archaeological work that's been done there in a very distinct way from the way that it's been conducted in, in North America. Like in North America, you've just got a wide variety of different groups, like cultures, you know, tribes as we might call it, or, you know, clans, um, all sort of overlapping with one another and interacting with one another in very complicated ways, but none of them ever actually becoming dominant or engaging in some sort of, like, empire building, at least not on the level that we're seeing in Central America. Like, uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but the, the archaeology seems to suggest that there have been some sort of, like, Native American or Northern Native American empires that have sort of risen and fallen as, as the ages have gone on. Um, but as we are familiar with them and as they were encountered by, like, European colonists, conquistadors, whatever, there was a huge, like, massive difference between the empire of the Aztecs or the Maya as it was encountered and the, you know, like, Pueblos or the Hopi or the Iroquois or the Algonquins or the Sioux, um, like, they were just much smaller. As much as there might have been a shared cultural heritage, there was very little interest in sort of, like, conquest and, and you know, empire building. It wasn't about making tributary states and, and people subservient to you. Um, it just wasn't for some reason. And as much as you would think, like, well, then why didn't the Aztecs just take them all over? Um, the Aztecs themselves seemed to be engaged in some fairly heavy-duty empire building, but realized pretty quickly that they couldn't expand all that far. Um, that said, they're also distinct because there is, in fact, a history to encounter here. Like, the Central American cultures had, in fact, developed their own form of writing, a, a writing that we have yet to, to sort of fully translate um, but because of the, I believe it's the Olmecs who introduced the, the writing system, um, and it sort of got picked up and adopted separately by one of the major cities in the area, which then developed into the Toltecs, which then would develop into the Aztecs. Um, and then the, the Mayans had kind of their own writing system, which was sort of separate from that. Um, again, I'm not doing a whole lot of research on, on this subject. I want to dig into it more, um, but I'm really just, you know, not entirely aware how I want to go about that. Um, this is, you know, its own separate entity in short. And it is something in many ways more familiar to European empire building and conquest. And the, the way that we usually talk about, like, the ancient world and the ancient Near East as being subject to, you know, various conquerors and, and emperors sort of, like, sweeping through and taking over the whole place, whether it's, you know, Alexander the Great or, you know, the Islamic conquest or the Ottomans or, you know, British imperialism, you name it. Um, this was kind of not a thing in North America, and for the Aztecs, as much as it was a major feature of their empire, um, this was largely necessitated by their own religious structure. 
um, which is where things are going to get dark around here. Um, the Aztecs, it's not exaggerated. They were very much engaged in, in like a lot of human sacrifice and, and for that matter, some ritualized cannibalism. Um, something that apparently all of the Central American cultures engaged in to some degree. Like, again, something inherited from, I believe, the Olmecs and the Toltecs. Um, but both the Mayans and especially the Aztecs had, had sort of like elements of the, the human sacrifice as a way of sort of propitiating and uh, making requests of various gods and deities. Um, for, for the Aztecs, this primarily comes down to Huitzilopochtli, uh, like their sort of major sun god figure, um, who is sort of like the primary protector of Tenochtitlan and a lot of the, the other sort of Aztec um, cities. Um, and it's emphasized in the book that, like, the Aztecs would go around conquering these tributary states specifically so they could sacrifice their people to Huitzilopochtli, who demanded these sacrifices. And, you know, if you're going to be sacrificing people to your god, then why not conquer some, you know, neighboring states and make them do all the tributizing? Um, additionally, it's, it's emphasized that, like, a lot of these cultures really resented the Aztecs for this for, you know, obvious reasons. Like, they don't want to worship Huitzilopochtli, who is kind of a jerk in expecting all of this human sacrifice. Um, apparently, like, every time one of these cultures arose that didn't have the, the sort of human sacrifice at the, the center of their culture, like, um, they would try very hard not to, to get involved in that, and the Aztecs would inevitably take them over because, you know, human sacrifice was kind of the motivating factor to keep them expanding and militarily powerful and, and so on and so forth. Um, which is honestly a fairly interesting dynamic. Like, these... This is definitely telling the story of the Aztecs from the perspective of anthropologists, something which is very different also from the way that we've encountered the North Native North Americans. Um, just because, unlike the Native North Americans, no Aztecs or Maya have survived the European conquest, so their stories really are just subject to white interpretation and dissection in a way that, you know... Like, if you're trying to recount the, the stories and myths of the Sioux, for example, there are enough Sioux still hanging around that they're going to tell you, you know, this is our interpretation, this is why we, we hold, hold it in this way. Um, this is something that we've kind of run into a couple of times in our discussion, like the sort of respect and the, the relationship between white anthropological studies and Native American, you know, self respect self you know apprehension uh self-awareness in some cases um lacking that insight of the the actual native aztecs the native maya um the anthropologists have been kind of free here to, to just sort of run rampant and and like address these cultures however they want um there were a couple of notes in the introduction that mentioned like some people definitely hold like a claim like i am descended from the maya especially um like these are in fact living cultures and it is suspected that there is human sacrifice going on to this day in certain parts of the world um but again like because that is not nearly so dominant because these practices especially were were so 
like vilified and therefore kind of served as justification for wiping these cultures off the face of the earth. Um, there are very few people who are, you know, holding up these practices and saying, you know, the, the Mayan philosophy of human sacrifice is one that we need to, you know, reevaluate and, and reconsider going into the future. Um, the same way that like Silco's ceremony emphasizes that the Native American perspective of sustainability is actually something that we maybe need to adopt for ourselves in the world where, you know, white imperialism and, and conquest and economic growth is actively destroying the planet. Um, nobody is saying, hey, maybe if we just sacrifice some more people to Huitzilopochtli, everything will be, be okay. Um, which, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure how to address any of this. Um, on the one hand, it would be an interesting thing to incorporate into the class. On the other hand, I suspect that we'd be opening way more doors than we could possibly shut. Um, so, like, as much as I am interested in the Central American cultures, and again, the South American, even though we didn't, like, get to like research or, or talk about that like i would love to do a study on the inca i would love to do a study on other south american uh native tribes like that would be fascinating to me but unfortunately we do not have the time and we're kind of leaning towards north american native americans anyway <sighs> alas um the one book that i did sort of come away with here because obviously like as a student of mythology as as a student of uh like the study of mythology broadly i i was especially keen to address sort of the mythological traditions of the aztecs the maya etc um since those are surprisingly robust and surprise and extremely well documented seeing as these cultures were in fact like written as well as oral um and quite a few of these texts have in fact survived um the big one that is apparently the representative text of the entire Central American world is the Maya myth, the Popol Vuh, um, which I tracked down and pretty easily downloaded onto my Kindle for like a couple of bucks or something. Um, and I am, in fact, hoping to read it at some point. Um, but I am definitely not eager to teach it anytime soon. Its reputation precedes it as being a text of pretty horrible, like values and, and morality and repercussions um like both the scholars talking about it in in the uh, gods and symbols of the ancient mexico and the maya as well as like numerous people sort of talking about this book online during my research very much emphasize that um this is a book very much condoning and propagating the practices of human sacrifice ritualized cannibalism etc um and honestly as much as this book is fascinating as a study of this ancient culture um where many times when you study an ancient culture's myths legends stories whatever you end up carrying away this kind of respect and awe for this culture by contrast the popova has very much been held up especially by christians as kind of an example of how terrible the maya and and the aztec actually were like people would read this book and be like and that's proof of why we should exterminate them off the face of the earth um which is kind of a tough thing to wrestle with like on the one hand, no, I do not in any way want to condone human sacrifice. And on the, you know, sitting here, having listened to all of these Native American voices and, and very much their emphasis that, like, um, th this sort of weird relationship between their truth and their myths, um, where, like, on the one hand, they, they need to adopt these things as true in some sense, 
in order to continue their traditions, in order to, you know, sort of, like, reinvigorate their identity, to connect to their culture and their history. On the other hand, like, they're totally fine with people sort of updating these stories or changing them, and creativity is supposed to be a part of the process, so, like... Truth does not operate here in the same way that it does in, you know, the scientific, the scientifically informed West, so to speak. Um, on the other hand, like, if I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so we need to take these things as true in order to properly appreciate and respect these cultures, and these cultures are telling us, hey, maybe, you know, dropping off a few bodies to, to Huitzilopochtli from time to time is, you know, how we keep the world from falling into chaos. That one is a little harder to swallow, like... Trying to maintain respect for these cultures while also sort of recognizing and acknowledging, like, truly morally abhorrent behavior um, is a fairly difficult needle to thread, I think. Um, which is probably part of the reason why we've romanticized Native American cultures as much as we have. Like, there are a lot of things about Native American mythology, Native American tradition, Native American culture that we admire and would love to adopt for our own purposes like they are to some degree ethically morally culturally compatible with christianity with greco-roman philosophy with the moral views of the enlightenment like it's definitely a complicated relationship and something that i would love to investigate more um but in a like in a way these northern native american cultures are compatible with our western outlook in a way that a lot of these central american cultures just really are not um and i suspect that that's probably informed a lot of our relationship to those cultures as opposed to central american cultures but as far as I'm concerned, this is purely academic. Like, there is no way that I'm going to be teaching the Popol Vuh as, you know, one of the primary myths in my classroom this coming semester. Um, I suspect that, like, I need to be knowledgeable enough about these cultures to be able to answer questions and, and sort of, like, foster discussion in my class. Um, but I also, like, this isn't going to be the primary focus. This isn't going to be the worldview we're trying to adopt. Like, this is not necessarily, you know... I don't even know how to put this. Like, I am going to intentionally ignore these cultures is kind of what it comes down to. And that's a really crappy thing to say. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, this seems to be a dead-end way of life in a lot of ways. Um, and as much as respecting and acknowledging these cultures would be great and studying their, their perspective and as a way of informing our own seems to be a good idea... Like, it's, it's really hard for me to, to justify, you know, I'm going to be deliberately bringing this into my classroom in order for us to discuss and dissect these things when really I, I have some major questions about how valuable that, that would be in this case. Um, like it or not, I am the arbiter of what makes it into the class, and given the fact that we're only going to have, like, two and a half weeks to spend on, on Native American anything... Um, I'd prefer to sort of focus the discussion on the topics that are both closer to our culture, specifically American culture. We're literally living in the area that would have been held by the Lenape once upon a time. Like, the college is literally named after the river that, you know, was in fact named by the Native Americans who lived there. Like... There is a clear connection to the land and culture that we should acknowledge and respect dwelling in their former homes and ancestral lands that we really don't have to in the case of Mexico. Like, it's not as immediate, it's not as apparent. 
So, yeah, it's a crappy justification, but stuff has to get cut. Um, and this is one of those things that, yeah, I, I suspect that, like, my time has been better spent studying the, the Northern Native Americans, um, just as shitty as that might be to admit. Um, so anyway, yeah, like, it's interesting. I'm glad that I know a little bit more about it. I would like to do at least a little bit more research so I can be a little bit more prepared for it when we confront it later on this semester. Um... But, yeah, it's not going to change my plans for the class in any significant or dramatic ways. Just I'm trying to get more knowledgeable so I can answer questions, address student concerns, sort of connect them to these cultures at least a little bit. Um, but that's it. Um, so with that in mind, moving on from Central America, Mexico, the Aztecs, Toltecs, etc. Um, I did also read the first two chapters of Spencer and Jennings, The Native Americans. Um... Which, again, like, just opening this book up and reading it, I, I was sort of very conscious of, again, that, that kind of anthropological divide between the white people studying these cultures and, and dissecting them and interpreting them according to their own standards and, and practices versus what these cultures very much have to say about themselves. Um, Jennings and Spencer are very clearly, like white scholars in the white scholarly tradition confronting these cultures in the 1960s and 70s um, from the perspective of a very alien academic world. Um, and on the one hand, they are, you know, to some degree respectful. They are conscious of the fact that they're sort of like uh, treading on, you know, these cultures and, and sort of using them for their own purposes. Um, they do very much like recognize that these are living, breathing people, living, breathing cultures that, that need to be respected on some level. I can also see that a lot of the work that they're doing is that kind of, you know, dissection of the already dead thing that, you know, a lot of, like, Cordova and Waters and Silco and company were, were kind of cautioning against. Um, there was a lot of, you know, like, here we are going to dissect, like, the Paleo-Indian culture and look at all of their artifacts and the way that they develop their various fluted spear points. And, you know, we have this these this nomenclature system about, like, Folsom Man or, or like, the, the people who came after the Folsom guy. And, like, here are the major sites that we found, like this place where apparently they ran a whole bunch of buffalo off a cliff. Um, and we found these spear points hanging out and, like, this is all fascinating but it also very much seems to be like looking at these cultures from a perspective that these cultures themselves would not appreciate or warrant um and it's important for me to know this stuff like again if i'm going to be answering questions to my students about like what came before how old are these traditions how old are these myths especially like you know what how long has it been that the what we call the Apache that Cordova hails from actually have been around and, and have been, you know, like practicing the things that they practice? Like, yes, I, I feel like I should be able to, to answer that question or at least point them to the scholarship that exists that, that will answer those questions a little bit better. Um, but especially in the chapter, the first chapter, which is very much on the sort of archaeological and anthropological efforts to, to sort of like understand native americans before the existence of the tribes that we have today like looking at you know six eight ten twelve even twenty thousand years ago and and looking at the archaeological evidence for you know who lived here what they were doing what their life might have looked like all that stuff there was very much this question hanging over me at, at all times it was just kind of like why 
why do we need to know this? Why is this worth rummaging around in, in people's ceremonial burial grounds? Why, why does this justify, you know, Trump traipsing about various reservation lands that were, you know, promised and guaranteed to these people? Um, why does this justify having, like, literally millions of bodies locked in, in various cabinets across the country? Um, what warrants this kind of academic research and, and examination? Um, and I honestly didn't come to an answer. Like, this is exactly the sort of stuff that Waters and the other writers in American Indian philosophy were writing about. This is exactly the sort of stuff that that essay on biocolonialism was concerned with. And, and it is troubling. Like, having a, a sort of vague outline of how these peoples came to this country or came to this continent... Um, like, there was some discussion of the Bering Strait hypothesis there. It was very much held up as fact uh, by Jennings and Spencer. Um, although, honestly, the evidence to back that up was spotty at best. Um, like, I suspect that there's better evidence in, in the sort of linguistic drift, and Jennings and Spencer would are very quick to admit that, like, a lot of Native American languages are very disconnected um, from the Asiatic languages that supposedly they are they are connected to. Um, and they admit on multiple occasions that the linguistic evidence is, again, spotty at best. Um, so, again, with a lack of, like, hard, you know, like archaeological evidence like no clear you know the the oldest finds that they were talking about like these these finds that indicated human presence you know 12 18 20,000 years ago were mostly found in shocker deserts like or on the great plains in in, in some uh places like most of the major archaeological finds that they they point to are in the american southwest or you know the the like midwest generally um i.e not like hey we found evidence of you know twenty five thousand years ago there were definitely people living in alaska where the bering strait or the the sort of like land bridge over the bering strait would have presumably dropped people off at the the earliest possible time like instead we're pointing to all these archaeological sites that are far away from the bering strait and saying this is evidence that they came over the bering strait I have no idea what to make of that. Like, especially considering, you know, Warner's pretty impassioned attack in one of her essays in American Indian Thought. Um, she she was very much stressing, like, this is just a hypothesis. It's filled, it's riddled with potential fallacies. We should be, you know, very skeptical of this approach. And Spencer and Jennings clearly aren't, and that I found a little bit irksome. Um at any rate, there is evidence that people have been living here for a long time. Um, there is evidence of, you know, several, like, quasi-empires rising and falling, major sort of trade centers, um, especially in Ohio, apparently. Like, there are multiple finds in Ohio that indicate that there was, like, this really wealthy, really uh, well-connected culture that was, like, uh, interacting with a lot of different people. Um but in many of these cases, even when we're talking about this sort of, like, great culture with its great material wealth, it's usually in European terms. Like, we're comparing them to the sort of tribute states of, you know, Greece or Rome, where, like, maybe that's not the appropriate, uh, the appropriate perspective to be looking at. And on the one hand, like, I know, I'm not an archaeologist. This is definitely me just backseat driving without nearly enough credibility to say any of this. 
But this is also 50 years old research. I'm, I'm keenly aware of the fact that there's probably a whole lot of new stuff since then, a whole different perspective on, on how to do archaeology. Like, on the one hand, this book, Spencer and Jennings, has been invaluable because it is just a very broad strokes, very, like, concise summary of so much of the history um, of these cultures and their interactions. And that's incredibly valuable to me because I've got a limited time on, at my disposal and I really don't have the time to deeply dig into multiple tribes worth of study and, and uh, like anthropological research. On the other hand, I just, you know, that, that the value of this summary is, is a little bit like tempered uh, by the, the backwardness, I say carefully, of its perspective. Um, the fact that, you know, 50 years ago, archaeology looked a lot different than it does today, and anthropology looked a lot different than I hope it does today. Um, and the skepticism and frustration that I've seen already from the Native Americans themselves has very much put me on guard against what uh, Spencer and Jennings are doing. Um, and rightfully so, I think. Um, the second chapter, though, I found much more valuable, and maybe that's just my hypocrisy or just the fact that I'm more interested in language or just because, you know, this was something that I had more knowledge about and could therefore, like, more intelligently parse. Um, but the second chapter is very much on Native American languages and their, their sort of interactions with one another. Um, like, Spen Spencer and Jennings very much admit at the outset that they have some fairly artificial groupings of Native American cultures in order to sort of like simplify the book and, and, you know, outline like various cultural similarities. And like the anthropologists they are, they tend to connect those to like major natural barriers, mountain ranges, um, rivers, but most importantly to what is being hunted, what is being eaten, um, what food sources are available. So like the Northwestern tribes are united by the fact that they all, you know, subsist strongly on a diet of salmon. Um, and much of their culture sort of surrounds this, the, the fishing of salmon. Um, by contrast, like, the Plains cultures are very concerned with the buffalo and, you know, hunting, while there are some agrarian societies sort of sprinkled in and among them. The Southwestern cultures are, are concerned very much with their, their agricultural growth and the, the Pueblo culture, and, you know, this is how these divisions tend to be made. Um, and these are not uncommon distinctions either. Like, Spencer and Jennings are very aware of the history leading up to this, and that they cite numerous sources that have done similar uh, categorizations or groupings and emphasize why they went with one direction over another. Again, good scholarly peer-reviewed stuff, but again, 50 years ago and therefore of, of you know, some dubious value. Um, but the linguistic discussion I found fascinating, just because there is so much to parse here. Um, one of the things that Jennings and Spencer is very much emphasizing is, like, there's this kind of common misconception, at least in the 1970s, um, among people who, like, are trying to study Native American culture, and they're like, okay, so how do I learn to speak American Indian? And Spencer and Jennings are like, no, that's not a thing. Um, they very much emphasize that there are something like 150 different recognized languages, like, not dialects, languages, there are easily over a thousand different dialects that might make an individual language, you know, virtually uninterpretable to the other culture. And these languages are distinct languages with distinct li linguistic differences. 
um, Spencer and Jennings emphasize that we're talking about like in this one continent and in this one area, like these Native American languages that we're talking about and assume some kind of kinship for are in fact as diverse as English and Mandarin Chinese. Um, like we are talking about radical distinctions, radical, you know, deviations in grammar and syntax. Like there's not some underlying similarity that links all Native American languages the way that we would presumably assume that there would be. Um, by contrast, these languages are radically different from one another. And, you know, like even within small areas, there are unique, distinct languages that have sort of resisted transformation or interpretation that seem to have no apparent place of origin, that, that have no clear similarities with other languages, or at least not after a certain time. Um, and while Spencer and Jennings recognize that, yeah, there are quite a few that bear the resemblances of certain Asiatic languages, especially um, like uh, languages spoken around Mongolia, um, it is unclear, like, that these are, are clear, you know, uh, are, are clearly related to one another, just because, again, there's so much difference, there's so much deviation, it's really not clear where these languages are originating in some cases. Um, and while he does, uh, Spencer and Jennings do emphasize a couple of those distinctions and sort of, like, uh, confront several common characteristics that are similar to many Native American languages. What's really important to remember is these are only like case studies. They are micro examinations. They are, you know, the, the difference between like doing a deep dive study of one person versus a careful psychological statistical analysis of many people. Um, we cannot get at the entire Native American perspective from these kinds of studies. Um, but he does emphasize that multiple tribes, multiple cultures, multiple languages in the Native American world bear some of these similarities. Um, and a couple of them I found really interesting. Um, Jennings and Spencer emphasize that there are multiple languages that are very strongly inflected or even like agglutinative, um, i.e. you have these words that are constructed by just like smashing more syllables and, and smashing sort of more additional words onto one another. Um, and therefore the concept of word in many of these Native American languages is extremely ambiguous. Um, as much as there have been many linguists studying a lot of these languages, there is a lot of difficulty trying to come up with even the basic vocabulary in some cases. Um, a single letter can add or subtract a great deal of meaning. Um, and because these are, in many cases, inflected languages, like, it's not always clear whether there is even a base term to sort of examine here. Like, every term is modified according to who is speaking, what is the relationship of the object to the speaker, what is the, you know, like, p the shape or the, the substance of the thing. Like, many of these inflected words include sort of modifiers according to shape or to hardness or um, to, you know, like other characteristics about that object, whether it is tall or whether it is short, whether it is lean or whether it is wide, whether it is heavy or whether it is light, like all of these things frequently come with its own modifiers. So as much as these Native American languages are sort of limited to their experience, they're also very open to accepting new things into their, their realm of understanding. Um, there is very little 
to put it in the way that Cordova would probably want us to to, to be thinking and, and to be expressing, there is very little distinction, very little of that sort of binary distinction between what makes a thing a thing. Things themselves are not like essential objects in the, some sort of platonic sense. They are defined by their characteristics. They are manifestations of greater mysteries. A Native American in many of these linguistic structures cannot assume knowledge of an object or that objects are a thing at all. It's not in the language itself. Um, additionally, one of the things that I found kind of fascinating was there was this whole discussion of um, this one particular language, which, again, I suspect had many sort of similarities in, in other languages across Native American cultures, um, where some of these inflections, some of these sort of articulations, some of these things built into the structure of the grammar or the word included not the sort of English or, or romantic obsession with, say, time, you know, the, this sort of strict uh, temporal understanding, which is frequently manifested in tense, um, for those of you who are not linguistically familiar, I should probably, like, back up here. Um, but you'll note that, like, when English speakers use verbs, it is almost always delineated according to when the action occurred. So we have a past tense, I am, or I was speaking. We have a present tense, I am speaking, which can be modified according to whether it's, like, ongoing or is it something that I'm doing frequently, like, I am speaking versus I speak often. And, of course, future tense, I will speak, I am planning to speak, however we, we want to describe that. Um, anyone who has studied any languages outside of the Romance languages is probably pretty familiar with the fact that this, this temporal obsession is not universal. Um, it is actually very distinctly European, um, at least in my experience. Like, if you try and even read, uh, like, the uh, Koine Greek, like the, the Greek of the New Testament, you'll find that those distinctions just do not exist. Um, there is very little in the way of distinctions between future, past, and present in Koine Greek, which makes distinguishing, like... Jesus's comments about the kingdom of heaven and prophecy very very difficult to do um, instead it has to do more with aspect is this a finished thing a one and done kind of thing or is this an ongoing thing something that is happening frequently or recurring um, like this is what uh, Koine Greek speakers were more concerned with um, for Native Americans, there really isn't this sense of tense. There is that same sort of aspect quality, like is the action finished, is it ongoing, is it recurring, is it ceremonial, etc. Um, but one of the things that I found especially interesting is a lot of the inflections have less to do with, like, the position of a word in a sentence and much more to do with the position of the word with respect to the speaker. Like, there is a lot of effort and sort of linguistic baggage sort of attached to identifying whether or not this person or thing that you were talking about is something that you are personally familiar with, something that you, like, have regular interactions with, something that you've just heard about from somebody else, or something that may or may not even exist. Um, this sort of existential or relative 
like trustworthiness is actually deeply built into a lot of Native American languages, which as a writer, I'm like super excited about because oftentimes, you know, when you're, you know, trying to adopt a sort of like storyteller's mantle in English, you're forced to adopt certain sort of conventions or, or genre tags in order to establish the, the distance between uh, this thing that you are recounting and you, you know, you, you have that kind of Mark Twain aspect where he's like, I didn't see this myself, but I heard about it from this one guy who heard about it from this other guy, etc., etc. Like, you can do all that in a single word in, in the Native American, in these Native American languages. Like, it is built into the inflections, the agglutinations of these words. This is kind of, like, intrinsic to the way that they speak. Their language is a storyteller's language and, you know, to sort of boil it down to its simplest and kind of, you know, misusing in the process form. Um, I should also stress that, like, just as Cordova kind of pointed at and identified, many of those, like, verbs and nouns and, and word uh, types that we identify in with the Romance languages and in English just also do not exist for Native Americans. Um, Spencer and Jennings emphasize that in many Native American languages, the difference between a noun and verb is not clear. It does not function the same way. Like, we do not have a subject-predicate sentence structure the way that we do in English when we study Native American languages. It just isn't there. Um, whatever the structure is, again, probably varies from language to language, and again, because these languages are so diverse, it can vary pretty wildly. Um, but the expectations of English speakers that you are talking about things doing things is just not there. The things and the doing are frequently one and the same. Again, as Cordova emphasizes, you know, motion is what brings meaning in a lot of these cases. Action and activity are as sort of essential as, you know, presuppositional to Native American perspective as the idea of an object and an object with characteristics and an object with characteristics that does things is essential to English speaking probably through Plato and Aristotle. Um, and this is something that I'm really kind of fascinated by. The book that I kept bumping into both in Cordova and in Waters and now again here in Spencer and Jennings is this book by Benjamin Worf called Language, Thought, and Culture, or Language, Thought, and Reality, um, which is apparently like part of this Sapir-Worf hypothesis that was very much getting current uh, in the 60s and 70s, which basically assumes that a language shapes a culture's perspective of the world. Like, you cannot think except in the framework that your language allows you to think. You are limited by your language to uh, certain frames of reference, certain worldviews, certain understandings of the world around you. Um, in the same way that English kind of lends itself to certain paradoxes, um, in, in the same way that, like, Bert, uh, Russell and Whitehead were trying to create a language that was, you know immune to contradiction and failed and you know girdle was very much like emphasizing that that's not a thing that you can do um in the same way that our language sort of implies a creator god or a being that oversees the making of the universe because we see the universe as a thing that can be acted upon by outside things and that's the way that things work because that's how we understand things because things are the frame but through which we view the world Native Americans lacking that have a very different understanding. Now, as far as I can tell, Sapir Wharf and this 
understanding of lang of culture as being sort of like delimited by language is very much under a lot of scrutiny like a more sophisticated relationship between language and culture seems to be more likely um but i you know again emphasizing books that i want to read books that i'm tracking down books that are you know materializing on my shelves or being delivered to me in the next weeks because i want to research this further wharf is one of those that very much has gotten enough references at this point that i can't help but include it if both the native americans and the native american or the white native american scholars are referring to this guy and praising him and seeing it as informative to understanding this perspective and it's about linguistic and language yeah definitely sign me the hell up um now it is old i imagine there are a lot of philosophers of language and semioticians who have since like refuted and rejected this but again even if cordova and waters are referring to wharf and the wharf sapir hypothesis as late as the 2000s it clearly hasn't been overturned uh, too long ago um it's clearly still current in short um, so in addition to all those other books that I was hoping to track down and didn't like Deloria's God is Red or uh, the, the this uh, book about Dance and Place by Norton Smith, which I do have a copy coming in soon enough. Hopefully I'll get the chance to read that soon um, or at least, you know, let it sit on my shelf while I read other things because, again, I've only got so much time here. Um, I also want to like look at Worf's perspective and, and look at his framework of understanding language and culture because it's extremely important to my own sort of interests and studies and research, um, but also because it does seem to be super informative here. Um, so yeah, Worf is also on the for further research list. Um, but moving away from Spencer and Jennings, like I do expect that I'll be referring to Spencer and Jennings again. Again, the book is like, just so wonderfully concise about dealing with the the like places and cultures and you know looking at the language but not so deeply that i would have to spend like an entire semester studying a single culture um i will definitely be looking at that again i hope hopefully like as i get closer to teaching uh the actual class that i'll be able to read at least his section on uh southwest cultures and the apache specifically um so i'll be a little bit more prepared for the the context surrounding cordova's how it is when i in fact teach it um the book is valuable but let's set it aside for now uh kind of the last thing i want to talk about here is what i'm doing with erdos and ortiz um i did in fact finish reading the american indian myths and legends collection which was quite a lot because you know 500 pages and it's like 200 myths or something like it's a it, it was a lot to just sort of keep track of and keep straight much less you know read start to finish um but again like if i'm envisioning this class as spending you know two full weeks on uh cordova and reading her basically cover to cover maybe you know not the whole thing but at least most of it um but introducing each of the cultures that i confront with their mythology confronting some of the native american myths that erdos and ortiz bring up here seems to be a pretty wise move um so after reading all of them and cherry picking quite a few of them i i've even tracked down a potentially not legal document that included the entirety of erdos and ortiz online and i have cut and pasted enough of it like into a little pdf document that may or may not appear on my website and certainly will appear in my class um which includes the six myths that i thought were probably the best uh for sort of establishing the native american perspective insofar as it's one thing and not like 500 different things 
Um, so, like, I landed on six myths. Um, and that's going to kind of have to be the representative mythology for the entire class. Um, and I want to kind of, like, go over why I picked the ones that I picked um, versus some of the others. Like, I, I want to at least discuss what my thinking was here. Um, just so I have it straight to myself and I, you know, know what I'm going to focus on in my classes going forward. Um, first and foremost, uh, I've mentioned it before and I, I definitely like ended up landing on it. Um, I definitely included how men and women got together. Um, part of the reason was it was a, uh, it was from the Blood Pygon tribe, which I don't know that much about and is very different from what Erdos and Ortiz usually pull from. Like, you can throw, you can't throw a rock at, at this book without accidentally hitting a, a page on the Sioux or the Cheyenne. Um, so every time that I've stumbled across a myth that I was particularly excited by and it was by a non-Sioux, non-Cheyenne writer, I was kind of quick to pick it up. Um... But how men and women got together is kind of great for a lot of reasons. Um, first, it very much is a creation story. Like, it features old man who makes men and women and the world and, like, sticks them all together. Um, which is kind of further complicated by the fact that old man then lives with the men. Like, I'm, it's very useful on that level because it's emphasizing that whole, you know, there is one creator force, something that is very common in a lot of these uh, myths. Like, yeah, as much as Erdos and Ortiz had, had told me that beforehand and, and several other writers had, had sort of stressed that, like having read through the entire collection at this point, yeah, there's a lot of references to like a great spirit or a great creator or some sort of like ambiguous figure who is responsible for the universe in some way um old man here is kind of perfect as an example because on the one hand he is this mysterious great creator force on the other hand he is a part of the community like he does not exist off in some faraway space he does not sit on that like giant red couch thing with all of the cherubs that michelangelo paints in the sistine chapel like no he is very much living among us he is hanging out with us. He is an equal to us. We could theoretically have the same amount of power given the right knowledge, the right medicine in some respect, which is something that I definitely want to emphasize. Um, but the other side of it here is it's really great for talking about like male-female relationships in Native American culture, something that will be really nice to sort of contrast with something like, for example, the Adam and Eve story in Judeo-Christian thought. Um like or for that matter the business of like filial piety versus marriage and something like confucianism or the mysterious like yin and yang relationships and taoism um like this is something i suspect that we'll be bumping into fairly frequently in the class um even if it isn't something i'm going to be running into in plato no matter which uh dialogue i use alas for the greeks being super duper misogynistic um but here it seems especially interesting because the whole business is like, the whole question being presented here is, given men and women and them living separately, how do they in fact get together? Like, how are they living apart from one another? Why are they both crucial to the community? Um, and for that matter, like, what are the faults and failings of each group left on their own? And that's kind of the whole thing here. Like, we have multiple occasions where people are saying, like, hey, we are clearly struggling just hanging out separately, so we need to, you know, like, figure out how to reconcile our differences and, and in fact, get together. Um, but there are all of these miscommunications along the way. And on the one hand, it's really entertaining to read. It's got very, like, 
sitcom misunderstanding vibes to it. So I imagine my students will enjoy reading it, which is always a plus. Um, but it's also interesting why they screw up. Like the women at first reject the men because they're dirty and they haven't washed and they smell bad kind of emphasizing a Native American perspective aligned with Western perspectives that women are more concerned with cleanliness, uh, more concerned with appearance, um, whereas men are more concerned with, like, whatever they're doing at any given moment. Um, so, you know, it, it's little details like that that I think will, will help to inform um, and, you know, give my students a chance to sort of evaluate but also, like, not come to a clear, obvious conclusion. Um, it's good for interpretation. It's good for you know revealing some of the some of the elements that a lot of the the writers have talked about. It also very much kind of lands on the side of the women as much as it is old men who creates the world and the men who are kind of more closely identified with the speaker. Um, the women make fewer mistakes here. Like the men are slower to learn than the women do. The women do try and like come down to the men's level on multiple occasions in a way that the men simply don't. Um, which also is something that Cordova especially seems to emphasize. Um, this idea of like many Native Americans being from like these matrilineal cultures as opposed to sort of patrilineal cultures, um, emphasizing sort of the wisdom of the women and, and the sort of primacy of womanhood as opposed to the primacy of man, uh, maleness or manhood. Um, like that's something that I definitely wanted to draw out because it is very prevalent in a lot of these myths. Um, and I think that this story does a really good job of, of describing all of that. Um, the second one that I'm including is kind of on a similar page. It's uh, the Sioux myth, the white buffalo woman, which this one's just hugely important. Like every source, every, you know, like writer that I encountered who was talking about this stuff very much sort of drew this myth out. It was kind of a, a crucial myth in the original like children's textbook that I was looking at. Um, it is important for a lot of reasons. Um, for one thing, like, the white buffalo woman isn't necessarily a creator figure, um, but she is very much a protector figure. Um, she very much is both a buffalo and a woman. Like, she transforms into a buffalo and runs off, and when she does, like, all the buffalo show up, and that enables the Sioux to go about their lives. Um, she explains to them the importance of, of the pipe, the, like, smoking pipe, um, and even, like, explains in detail, like, every element of the pipe. Um, and is, like, thus emphasizing sort of the, the Native American ritualizing of uh, behaviors and practices thing that I want to drive home here. Um, and it is also emphasized that, like, she disappears and becomes a buffalo and therefore is, in fact, out there still protecting them, still, you know, like, engaging with the, the animal world. Like, the animal world is, in fact, alive, conscious, protective, you know, interacting with the human world in a way that I want to emphasize. Um, and for that matter, like... Or, or, Ordos emphasizes um, that, like, when he was in fact visiting Lame Deer, the, the chief who told him this particular story in this particular case, like, Lame Deer showed him the pipe that they were referring to. Um, like, this is a real thing that exists, um, which is another thing that I want to emphasize. Like, I want to draw out that sort of relationship to reality, um, and not just to reality, but to, like, objects, things in the world, places in the world um, that is so much a part of what Cordova is emphasizing and how it is and that is, you know, very much like intrinsic to a lot of the, the Native American perspective as far as I've explored it. Um, 
So White Buffalo Woman is a, a must. Like, this was probably one of the most obvious inclusions that I, that I wanted to bring in. Um, the third myth that I'm including is uh, the, the Iroquois tale of Hiawatha the Unifier. Um, this is probably one of the dodgiest inclusions, just because, like, I am getting it from... Like, Erdos admits that he gets it from Victorian sources. This, this is... Like, a story that has probably been fairly butchered by the time that it uh, sort of reaches us. But I did definitely want to include an Iroquois story just because, again, I'm teaching in Iroquois territory. Um, and this is, like, one of the most important myths and one of the most important sort of cultural touchstones um, between white people and the Iroquois. But it also emphasizes, again, a lot of the things that Cordova is stressing. Um, the whole story of Hiawatha is unifying the multiple tribes that would become sort of the Iroquois, um, emphasizing, like, their differences, but also their important, in, like, inclusion in the overall alliance, um, stressing that their cooperation is going to guarantee that they're served that they will survive like this is held up as an important myth of the native americans for a reason even if it has been bastardized by the likes of you know victorian writers or longfellow or otherwise um it's an important story it is in fact reflective of a native american outset even if it is especially prompt like especially uh emphasizing values that we white folks share with native americans like, it is something that I, that Cordova sort of reiterates and, and buttresses, and it is something that I want to at least discuss and confront with my students. It's also another one that's the, that's just eminently readable and enjoyable, and I imagine that, like, it's too important for me to ignore at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, Hiawatha is in, dubious though its origins may be, um... The fourth one that I wanted to include, which is another Sioux inclusion, and I'm kind of grumpy about the fact that I've already got like two Sioux inclusions out of the six uh, stories that I'm that I'm using. But again, it was just too good to ignore. Um, namely, like in this one again, I just enjoyed the crap out of it. Um, it's the story of the Thunderbirds, uh, specifically like the as Erdos recall or records it, uh, Wakanyan Tonka, the Great Thunderbird. Um, again, this is a lame deer story, but the story of the Thunderbird is kind of fascinating because on the one hand, it introduces this mythic being that, again, my students might very well be familiar with, um, but it is also introducing them as sort of protectors of humans as opposed to Unkeha um, or Unktechi. Um, the, like, they have different names across different tribes. Um, Unktechi is just fascinating to me. He's like this giant, horrible water monster um, and he's especially significant because, like, he is once again identified with place. Um, when the Thunderbirds in this case, or the various culture heroes and other stories overcome Unktehi, um, he dies and his backbone becomes this particular, like, rock formation in the Badlands that has been recorded by multiple writers, like, in South Dakota or North Dakota, like, that whole stretch that we call the Badlands, Apparently, like, part of the ridges there, part of the, the rocks there, is Unktehi's backbone. Um, and Lame Deer himself actually concludes the story by saying that he got lost in the Badlands and found the backbone and was led out of it by, you know, a thunderstorm. Um, which, again, like, as much as the story itself is kind of, you know, rough to, to parse... Um, 
like it, it has sort of surprisingly little to do with humanity it is significant to note that on the one hand here are these natural forces warring with each other and humans are sort of just side of kind of a sideshow in all that's going on here but it also emphasizes sort of that these are real places these monsters correspond to real locations and that very much emphasizes again Cordova's stressing that like by removing Native Americans from their homelands from their places you are actually like stripping them of their heritage their culture their sacred sites etc so again this is a great example of that much as we saw in uh like white buffalo woman and elsewhere but here it's sort of so specifically located to a place that i, I did really want to draw that home um and the thunderbirds and being able to talk about the thunderbirds and Umtahi is is also pretty sweet um the last two are kind of weird though um, the first of the two, like, Ordos has this whole section on death, um, where he, there are, like, a lot of stories about sort of ghosts and, and humans interacting with each other, or, like, a lot of Orpheus kind of stories, like, it, I, you know, referring to a Greek myth in this case is kind of unavoidable because the stories are so very similar insofar as so many of these tales involve like person goes to you know the realm of the dead to bring somebody back and then screws up at the very last minute for one reason or another like there were three or four of those in the collection and i you know some of them may have been influenced by orpheus some of them certainly seem to be older than you know could be explained by their interactions with uh greco-roman philosophy it's certainly complicated but it is what it is um the one story that i picked out among these traditions is this uh chinook story called blue jay visits ghost town which is just delightful for a lot of reasons um if there is a gaping hole in the stories that i'm talking about is that i don't have any trickster stories like there are no coyote stories which is a huge bummer um, like coyote is such a huge figure for so many of these uh cultures like trickster stories like stories about people who are you know either too smart for their own good or who like outwit or um outsmart um villainous people like they're very prevalent throughout the the native american traditions and i've somehow managed to ditch that altogether like that's the main thing that i regret in all of these but it's really hard for me to imagine cutting any one of the ones that i've included um and it's really hard for me to imagine giving these students any more to read because I'm already like dropping 35 pages of disparate myths on their shoulders. And that's that's a lot for like one day's worth of class. Um, so at any rate, I gave them Blue Jay versus Go or Visits Ghost Town because Blue Jay very much is in that trickster category. Like he is, in fact, a person. His name is Blue Jay. He's not like an actual Blue Jay. But again, it's Native American folklore and, and mythology the the connections between the animal and the and the person are you know ambiguous at best um but importantly blue jay goes to ghost town and he is baffled by their culture like it is very much a you know person taken out of their home and put into a new location trying to sort of wrestle with their traditions so there are multiple cases of like blue jay is going fishing with the skeletons and the skeletons like pull all of these leaves and branches into the boat and blue jay is like why are you why are you doing that and he's like well this is what we eat and blue jay's like get it out of here we're, we're gonna go catch a fish and then finally like he brings home a couple of branches and like a handful of leaves and the skeletons are like uh he threw out most of what we caught and blue jay is like well it was just a bunch of stupid leaves and then the leaves like transform into fish and the branches transform into sand 
salmon and Blue Jay is like, oh, well, I guess I really don't know what I'm talking about there. Um, but he doesn't learn from it. Like, he's got this very Coyote-esque character where he just keeps making these mistakes, keeps thinking that he's smarter than everybody else, and as a consequence, very much comes to a bad end. Um, but it also very much emphasizes, you know, the ritual significance here that, like, you are in the realm of the dead, you should be more respectful, you should, you know, listen to these people. Like, Blue Jay figures out pretty quickly that if he yells, like, the, the dead all whisper to each other, so if he yells, they'll just turn into skeletons and not be able to affect him anymore. And he uses this to sort of overpower them on a regular basis, even though the dead frequently resent him for that. Um, which is something that very much turns into a comeuppance when Blue Jay doesn't heed their warnings and is in fact killed trying to get back to his home. And he comes back to the realm of the dead because, you know, he's actually dead now. And they very much just like, like the dead crowd around him and sing this song that like totally make him brain dead effectively. Um, as you know, we're, as it concludes, he had died a second time made witless by the magicians. Like, Blue Jay is punished for his presumptuousness here um, by basically being turned into someone completely idiotic, someone totally stupid, unable to, you know, do any thinking for themselves. He dies twice, in short. Once because he doesn't heed their, their words, once because he is punished for, uh, like, mistreating them as much as he did. So it's a fascinating story start to finish, and very much embodies this very Native American perspective, at least, again, as Cordova and Waters and company have emphasized, of sort of respecting your environment, respecting the people who know more than you, being a part of the community and a productive part of the community, as well as, you know, the typical coyote lesson of... You know, here is this person who thinks that they're smarter than everybody else, who is super individualistic and comes to a bad end as a consequence. So as much as this is not a coyote story, it is probably the closest thing to a coyote story that I can include, while also giving us this really interesting view of the Native American view of death, the Native American view of sort of like cultures bouncing into each other, uh, recognizing and appreciating your place in the world. All of that is very prevalent here, which is why I've kind of leaned on it, even if it is a bit on the long side um, the last one I include, though, is very unusual. Um, like, it isn't a representative story so much as one that I just want to incorporate as an instructive story. Um, specifically, there is this shot, like, the last section that Erdos includes is on, like, the end of the world. Um, like... The, the title of the section is Only the Rocks and Mountains Last Forever, which were apparently the last words of one Native American culture hero who, like, went to his death fighting the, the white folks. Um, and this section includes a lot of sort of, like, apocalyptic-type stories, like prophecies of the end of days, like the world is suspended by a string, but there's somebody that's, like, gnawing on the string, and eventually, like, if you do certain things, he'll gnaw on it faster, and then if it parts, then the world will fall into an abyss and everyone will die. Like, there are stories that have a sort of revelation, apocalypse-esque quality, but a lot of these stories also have to do directly with white people and the coming of white people to Turtle Island, to the continent of the Americas, and literally, like, bringing about an apocalypse on these Native Americans, which is something that I do want to, like, discuss and describe with my students. Like, seeing the end of the world as not just, you know, like, the destruction of the world and the, you know, making of the world uninhabitable to humans, but the way that, essentially, like, the end of the world has already come for some that the end of a way of life is absolutely as 
traumatic and destructive. And in a sense, we had already brought that to the Native Americans. Um, so the story I'm including is the Cheyenne story, The Death of Head Chief and Young Mule. Um, and it literally starts, this is a true story that took place in 1890, but is, it is also a legend among our people. Which already were in, you know, that interesting, like, is this true? Is this false? Like, what is the relationship between reality and storytelling here that I definitely want to drive home? But it's also just a heartbreaking story. Like, allow me that much. Here is the story of Head Chief who decides to protect his people while they are starving, despite the fact that his the land allotted to them on the reservation has been like totally depleted of game, partially because of the Native Americans having to eat, feed themselves, partially because of people like poaching and you know the usual stuff that's going on in the 19th century. Head chief goes and kills a cow on a rancher's land. And the rancher's nephew shows up, catches him in the act, and head chief kills him as well. Um, at which point, naturally, the law comes down on him. The white people demand to give him up. And Head Chief, rather than letting like the young men of the tribe defend him and possibly causing a massacre, something that he's very conscious of and doesn't want to happen, Head Chief requests, like, I will not submit myself to being arrested, but I will rise out and attack you weaponless, and you can shoot me down as is appropriate for a warrior. Which is just heartbreaking to watch in action. And part of the reason why I want to include this story is because it does sort of emphasize, especially Plains warrior culture, the business of counting coup. Like, it very much stresses that Head Chief, like, counts coup on these white soldiers many times before he is actually brought down. Um, it, it very much emphasizes sort of, like, the, the values and the priorities, especially of the warriors, as they're sort of, like, wrestling with the fact that, you know, their chief is willingly giving himself up. Um, it very much emphasizes that it is not about, like, how many people you bring down with you. It is about the, the honor, the bravery that you demonstrate when you go to war, something that is emphasized in many of the Counting Coups stories earlier on in Erdo's collection. So it does all of the stuff that I would hope a war story would do, which is part of the reason why I don't include any others, but it also very much drives home the differences between the Native American culture and the white culture and drives home just the danger and of extermination that many of these Native American tribes faced by confronting white people and white culture. It very much brings home the reality of what Native Americans lost and what Native Americans lack as a consequence of white interference and white intervention. It drives home the white people as this apocalyptic world-ending force and hopefully will make my students start to think of this from the Native American perspective. Like, I think this is actually a kind of perfect introduction to the stuff that Cordova will be talking about later. Um, now, again, the six stories that I've included come to, like, something like 32 pages, which is more than I was hoping for. I was aiming for, like, 25, because anytime you give a bunch of students a bunch of myths and expect them to, like, retain and discuss them all, it gets pretty confusing pretty quickly. And as much as, again, I absolutely wish I could include a coyote story in here, um, like, it is really hard for me to imagine exactly what I would drop as a consequence. Like, I can't very well get rid of White Buffalo Woman or Hiawatha. They're both super important. Like, the Thunderbirds myth might be able to be dropped, but it would be really hard for me to, like, establish that relationship to the land thing otherwise. Blue Jay is just such a good story for, like, so many reasons. And, and the, the, you know, 
how men and women came together is just so compelling from like like the the world creation standpoint there's just so much that i want to incorporate and i guess coyote will have to suffer as a consequence but it kills me to not have a coyote story in here um nonetheless i suspect that he'll come up uh like a lot of the coyote stories are pretty brief so it wouldn't be a lot of work for me to sort of like narrate one and honestly i suspect that's the better way to do it anyway like you better believe i'm going to be teaching native american myths the same way that i teach myths in my mythology class where i'm just sort of like reaching and sort of remembering various myths that are you know tangentially connected to the ones that we're talking about and sort of telling them in my own idiom um which is especially good in this case like again this is what Silco emphasizes this is what Cordova emphasizes is what water em waters emphasizes like the business of storytelling is supposed to be on the fly it's supposed to be oral it's supposed to be creative so yeah let's get these six right let's have my students read these six come to class thinking about these six and then i can absolutely just dump the occasional coyote myth on them or you know some of the weirder stuff that i encountered um i suspect that that's the best way to do it um but yeah that's where we're at um, and that's it. Like, again, this is as much time as I have to devote to Native American mythology here, which is a huge bummer. Um, like, I have to move on because I have a lot that I need to know about, uh, especially Hindu and Buddhist thought um, before the class starts. I definitely do want to sort of reread some of my Chinese sources. And I do also want to go over the Gospels and decide which one I'm going to incorporate into the class, um, assuming that we're still doing that. So this is it for our Native American philosophy research notes. Starting next week, I am hoping to read, I mean, it's a huge book, but I'm hoping to read virtually start to finish uh, my source book in Indian philosophy. Um, this is, again, an old one. It is 1957, um, edited by Sarvapali Radhakrishnan and Charles Moore. Um, it is fortunately like just... Again, this delightful little book, old though it may be, um, incorporating both sort of like introductions, but also the actual text of many of the important works of Indian uh, spirituality, like some of the Vedas, some of the Upanishads. It should give me a pretty good reference point for the entire history of Indian or of Hinduism, um, as well as incorporating stuff from Buddhism, Jainism, and, and other sort of traditions, as well as philosophers after the fact. Um, so it might very well take me more than a week to get through the whole thing because it's like 600 pages long, um, not even counting like the, the bibliography and stuff. Like this is a book that I literally just found on a shelf in a used bookstore for $6 and I was like, this looks perfect for, you know, my entry point into Hindu Hinduism, etc. Um, so I'm literally going to read this one cover to cover, um, probably picking up anything along the way that I've deemed relevant or valuable to the class. Um, and then we'll just go from there. So, yeah, for next time, I may very well also go over some of my readings from uh, Mircea Aliade's History of Religious Thought, um, which I've already read, but has a lot of stuff in there about Hinduism and its development over time, um, even if it isn't fully complete and is very much Western in its perspective. Um, next time we're talking about Hinduism. That, that's the primary goal. So source book in Indian philosophy is going to be my primary text. Um, hopefully I'll be able to read as far as the discussion of Buddhism, even if I don't quite start the discussion of Buddhism. Um, but that'll include uh, the inclusions from the Vedas, 
some of the inclusions from the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, um, and the laws of Manu, as well as a little bit of Karvaka and Jainism. Um, at least, again, that's where I'm hoping. Uh, we'll get as far as I possibly can and then, and then go from there. Um, and then after that, hopefully we'll be able to knock out the rest of the book where, you know, it's talking about like, uh, Vedanta, yoga, and many of the traditions after the fact. Um, so yeah, uh, we're done with Native American philosophy, at least for the time being. Like, I'll let you know if I do any more reading between now and the end of the semester, or the end of the summer. Uh, for next time, a source book in Indian philosophy. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.